We're going to come now to the time of fellowship. We are going to commune with the Lord. It's interesting when you look at the, the feast of the Old Testament, particularly if you read through the book of Deuteronomy, how many times it speaks about rejoicing, rejoicing before the Lord. It was only on the Day of Atonement that the people would mourn and that they would fast. And even if you look at, in the early church, there are some church fathers who would forbid fasting on the Lord's Day because this day is supposed to be a day of rejoicing and communing with God. And so the people in ancient times would come before the Lord in Jerusalem and they would feast before him. They would commune with him over a meal. And so we are going to commune with the Lord now over a meal, both in the word and in the table. He leads us into this time through John 17, 17, where Jesus is praying in his great high priestly prayer. And he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So give heed now to the truth of the word as Pastor Thurston comes. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 125. We're continuing our study of the songs of ascents, 15 songs that God gave his people to sing in, as they made their way to Jerusalem and uh, to worship him in the Old Testament. But for us, the new Jerusalem, every one of us is disciples of Christ, ministers in God's kingdom, servants of the Lord, children of God. We likewise are making our way to the new Jerusalem. We're just saying about um, uh, that glorious time when Christ comes back, when we set our feet in the new, on the shores of Canaan. It's time he's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. And that's where we're going. So God gave us 15 songs to learn, that to be memorized. And in the context, at least their, their content, their message. And in that context, they're to be sung and meditated upon. And therefore, they're to be embodied in our lives, um, as we make our way to the New Jerusalem, as we live our lives in this fallen world, um, these songs are given to us towards that end. That being said, Psalm 125 is the sixth psalm um, that God has given us here. The first five, um, I won't review them, but you've got to review there in your, in your outline what the content was and the basic message. This psalm is, once again, uh, another twist, different from the previous five, and uh, um, addressing a very specific need on the part of God's people. That being said, brothers and sisters, this is God's word. This is the word of, of our king. And therefore, it's appropriate for us, as in the ancient world, that when, God, when the words of a king were read, you stood. We're going to stand out of reverence and respect for our Lord at the reading of his word. So please stand together with me. Psalm 125. <clears throat> Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land of the righteous, that the righteous may not put forth their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who do good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But as for those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead them away with the doers of iniquity. Peace be upon Israel. As far the reading of God's word, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the privilege you've given us now to come with Bibles in hand and 
um, notes and uh, sitting on the edge of our seat, taking notes and, and fellowshipping and studying your word together. Lord, we pray you'd bless this time of study. And that, Lord, in the process of the study, your spirit would, would take these words and impress them deeply in, into our soul. That, Father, they, we would hear more than just a message, but that, Lord, we would receive a worldview, a, a way of thinking, a paradigm shift such that we would live in this state of sin and misery as aliens and, and, and strangers, as pilgrims, longing for their heavenly home. Father, give us the grace so to do. We pray this as we fellowship with you in your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Matthew 7 contains what I think is perhaps one of the more uh, sober statements in all of Scripture. Listen to the words of Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Christ tells us in this passage that there's going to come a day, the end time, when Jesus Christ comes back. When, we, when, when people are going to come before God believing that they're saved. And thus they'll address him as such. Um, in verse 22 or, or 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. They're going to address him as Lord. And not only are they going to address him, him as Lord, but they will have been people, men and women, who have engaged in incredible acts of service in God's kingdom. Verse 22 of Matthew 7. Many will, will say to me on that day, did I not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, perform many miracles in your, your name. So we're not talking about the cradle um, tomb uh, Christian. You know what I'm talking about? They attend church twice a year on Easter or on Christmas cradle and on tomb um, day on, uh, um, on Easter. Um, we're talking about people who are leaders in the body of Christ. I mean, they're, they're prophesying. That, that means preaching. They're missionaries. They're out on the mission field bringing the message of the gospel to the nations. We're talking about people who, who in, in Paul's day, cast out demons in Christ's name. We're talking about people who did miracles in Christ's name. So we're talking about Green Berets, people who you and I look up to in the context of the local body. I, I would supplement this before, with 1 Corinthians uh, 13. People who, who, have sp- who, have, who have spoken with the tongues of men and of angels. People who have faith, so much faith so as to remove mountains. And yet these very people, these these spiritual green berets, if you will, these people we look up to, they're going to receive these, this word from Christ on that day. I declare, to, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. It's a sober passage. It makes me appreciate Paul's exhortation, 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 13, where he says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? And that's in 2 Corinthians says, don't presume, Christian. Every one of you here, do not presume you're saved. That's a dangerous place. Why? Because 
according to Matthew 7, it's not just the, the, it's not people who don't know Christ who on the last day are going to find out, wow, I'm sentenced to hell. It's people who we look up to in the church who are leaders. People we want to emulate, missionaries, elders, deacons, name it. They're the ones who are going to hear on the last day, depart from me, I never knew you. Well, that raises a question, how do we know we're saved? On what basis do we examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith? Well, I hope right now, immediately, you know it can't be based upon your religious deeds, your religious activity. It can't be because of your good things. Because think about it, if missionaries and preachers and elders and leaders who've done so much sacrifice, casting out demons, miracles, on and on and on, if those people aren't saved... If that doesn't save you, then brothers and sisters, there's nothing you can do that can save you. Nothing. So whatever the answer is, I don't know what it is yet, right? We might be saying, but it can't be based, based upon Matthew 7, upon our religious activity. Well, what is it based upon? Psalm 125 helps us towards that end. This psalm was written to commend and encourage saving faith. It was written to commend and encourage genuine believers of God in contrast to false believers. That's what this psalm is all about. It's, as I I put here, it's it's a saving faith, a commended. It's a commending genuine servants as opposed to those missionaries and leaders and teachers amongst us who aren't saved. Let's get into it. As this is a psalm, it was written to be understood as a whole. So they have no problem putting the context and what, why this psalm was written way in the middle of it, okay? But for us to understand this better, we need to begin in verse 3 because that's the, it tells us what the context is. So let's begin by looking at the context of this psalm. What's the context when this psalm was written? And then we're going to discuss it. Notice with me verse 3. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land of the righteous that the righteous may not put forth their hands to do wrong. So we're talking about a time, very broad. We do not know from that, that's all that we've got. We don't know when this was written. We don't know why it was written. We don't know who wrote it. Um, We know it's in God's word, but we don't know the context behind it. And you know what? It's probably written uh, um, um, accordingly. It was probably written for the purpose of being very broad, very, very um, general. Why? So that this would be applicable to all God's people in all places at all times. Think of it. We're talking about the scepter of wickedness. Talking about a king. Evil kings, wicked kings ruling over the nation in which God's people live. Well, brothers and sisters, that about uh, describes every Christian, every child of God over the last 3,000 years. Save a couple moments Most Christians over the last 3,000 years have lived in kingdoms and nations where the scepter was wicked. Let's define that word wicked. It's the opposite of the Hebrew word tzaddik. The Hebrew word tzaddik means righteous. This word, rashe, um, is a word, it's, it's the exact opposite of righteous. Well, what would a righteous throne, a righteous scepter be? Well, a righteous scepter, we know that from the Old Testament, is a king who rules according to God's word. A king who upholds God's word, a king who knows God, and a king who seeks to have God's people know know God. A king who lives to honor and glorify God, not themselves. 
That's what that king would be. Therefore, a, a scepter of wickedness would be the exact opposite. It would be a king who didn't care about God, who didn't care about God's word, who didn't care about upholding God's word, and didn't care about God's glory. He cared more about his glory and the glory of, the, of certain people. If you're a monarchy, an oligarchy, a republic, or a democracy, it would be a one or groups of men and women who live for themselves, who are there for power, who are there for honor, who are there for money, that would be a scepter of wickedness. Now, brothers and sisters, this scepter of wickedness is prophesied here, and that's what makes this psalm so sober, so heavy. Notice verse 3, it says in 3, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land of the righteous, and you could fill in there forever. Okay. What's he talking about? Brother and sister, he's talking about the last judgment. He's, ta- he's anticipating, this is anticipating the time when God comes back, Jesus Christ returns, and not only will individuals stand before God and render account for what they've done, but every office bearer, and one office bearer is specific in this verse, are civil magistrates, civil governors, civil leaders, presidents, senators, um, representatives, name it. They're going to stand before God and be held accountable not only for their own sin, but for their wicked regencies or their their wicked rules. Listen to Isaiah 2. This is one of many verses in the prophets where God says, look, I'll use a wicked kingdom. I'll use them to, uh, uh, to fulfill my purpose. All things work together for good to those who love God, even wicked kings. But that doesn't mean because I'm using that those wicked kings are therefore guiltless. Listen to Isaiah 2. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud. He's talking about leaders. Proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that they may be abased. And then he describes these leaders using physical, natural words. So, so he's not calling people out. He's simply calling uh, positions out. And it will be against the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the hills that are lifted up. All these are kingdoms. Against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against the ships of Tarshish, and against um, all beautiful craft. And the pride of man will therefore be humbled, and the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So the context is this. This is written to men and women who love the Lord, who are living in lands that are wicked, right? Psalm 120, 121, think of the context. We're in the diaspora. We're living as aliens and strangers in this world under wicked leaders, wicked kings. But this text says this, but we live there knowing that their day's coming. We don't live going, man, this is it, man. That, that king is all there is. And I've got to do everything I can to live. Guess what? We know they're going to stand before God. We know they have an end. And we know that all wicked kingdoms in every place at all times eventually will be overthrown. And because we know that, notice how it ends. It ends with this encouragement. Thus, um, well, I'll just read it again. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land of the righteous, that... The righteous may not put forth their hands to wrong. Brothers and sisters, do you see what this is written to? This is written to the, to the alien and stranger in the diaspora living under these wicked kingdoms. 
and encouraging them, don't take matters into your own hands. Don't be worried and bothered about so many things. Don't be concerned about Caesar, who's calling Christians into the arena and having them be, you know, you know, executed. Don't be frazzled when he dips their heads in oil and lights them and lights and, and uses it to light his gardens. That's what happened in Caesar's day, Nero's day. Don't, be, don't let that burden you. Don't let that move you. Be moved by something else, but don't be moved by that because Caesar, Nero, name the king, name the government, name the kingdom or the nation. Someday they're all going to be gone. Someday we are going to be rank, uh, ruled, and, uh, ruled over by the king of kings and the lord of lords and the new heavens and the new earth. So this psalm begins with recognizing, having us recognize yeah, we live in a bad land. We live in a land where, where our representatives, or our king, or whoever they are, they're not doing it for us. They're doing it for, uh, for them. It's all about power. It's all about might. It's all about might makes right. Name it. Yeah, we live in that, in that land. And our hope and joy is not that somehow our nation become Christian, that somehow we get the right man or the right uh, woman in that leadership so that we will have stability. That's not our hope, Right? We're not to be burdened by the things going on in our land. We're not. We're to recognize, Psalm 120 uh, uh, says, hey, turn, trust God. Last Psalm, trust God, right? That's what we're called to do, not be burdened by them. Because when we're burdened, that's where bad company corrupts good morals. When we're burdened, we do things and say things and act in a way that is so wrong. We tell our children, don't fear God, fear the senator. Don't fear God, fear COVID. Don't fear God, fear whatever. When brothers and sisters, this psalm is written to a people that they might sing this over and over and over. The kingdoms of the world someday will be given over to the kingdom of Christ. Christ will reign supreme. And we therefore must not respond sinfully. All right, then that leads then from this to the concern. So that's the context. That's who this is written to. People who know the king is evil and they're not, he's not going to last, but our hope and joy is in the second coming of Christ. Our hope and joy is in the uh, Lord. With that, notice the theme. I use C because it's all C's alliteration, but it really is the theme. The theme of this psalm is found in verse 1 and in the very f- first phrase. Notice with me the concern. Psalm 1, or Psalm uh, uh, Oh, 125 verse 1. Those, for those who trust in the Lord. That's what the psalm is all about. Those who trust in God. Skip down to verse 4. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good. And we understand what this means. Do good to those who have been made good. Okay? Do good to those who, who do not necessarily do good, but who are good. People who have been made good by God's grace. And then it goes on. And to those who are upright in their hearts. Once again, believers. People who have been made, genuine believers, genuine children of God. People who have been made good by God. Okay? So this, this psalm is all about those people. Now in verse 5, just look down one moment. But as for those who turn aside to, to, to their crooked ways, he's talking now about non-believers or false Christians amongst God's people. So notice, this is focusing, this, this psalm recognizes the body of Christ is made up of two people. Churches, kingdoms, name it, Judaism, is made up of two people. 
in this time, Judaism, right? Those who are genuine children of God and those who are, who are not. And the promise that I'm giving you here, says the psalmist, is directed for believers, genuine children of God. If you're not saved, this isn't for you. But this is for genuine believers, which raises the question that I asked at the beginning, on what basis do we believe you're saved? How do you know you're one of God's children? I mean, if church leaders aren't, if, if those who prophesy, if those who do miracles, obviously, if, the, if doing good things doesn't make you a child of God, well, then what does make you a child of God? Well, look at verse 1. It says it right there. Those who trust in the Lord. The word trust means to rely. It means if every one of you are trusting in a chair to hold you up. Every one of you right now are trusting. What's a picture of trust? You take your entire life, everything about you, and rest it. That's what you're doing right now. You're sitting, your entire weight is sitting, resting, trusting chairs to hold you up. So all of those who are resting completely, not just in time, I'm trusting God for a good grade on my test. That'd be temporal trust. We're talking about people whose whose lives are lived on top of a foundation, and that foundation is, look at verse 1, the Lord. Jeremiah 17, 7. Blessed um, is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about people whose trust in life and death is not their work, their effort, their, their strength, medicine, money, men, women, whatever. Their trust is exclusively in the Lord. Let me give you a background on this briefly in Scripture. The Old Testament picture of this trust, do you guys know what it is? It's a metaphor used throughout all of Scripture. The Old Testament uh, metaphor, picture of this kind of trust is found in the sacrificial uh, system. You, you might say, oh, it's when Abraham sacrificed his son. You can think of all different examples, um, but it's the sacrificial uh, system that, 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 that saturates the Old Testament. What was that system? Well, for a person to enter into God's presence... That's what the worship, not just worship God, but enter into his presence, which is what we're talking about in salvation. For you and I, when we die, to enter into the presence of God and live with him forever in the Old Testament, that was pictured by the sacrificial system. For a person to enter into God's presence, what what are you taught by the sacrificial system? You're taught that you can't do it if you have sin. Right? If I got sin, I can't enter the presence of, of God. So what I got, I got to find a lamb. Oh, any old lamb? No, a spotless lamb. Well, what's spotless mean? Well, sinless. That's the idea, right? A, a, a lamb that's not been tainted by sin in any way. So I take that spotless lamb, and you know the story. You know how it worked. You brought that lamb to the temple doors where then the priest would say, confess your sin. And you'd lay your hands on the head of that spotless lamb, and you'd say why you're there. Why I, I am there today. I, uh, today I stand as one who, is just, who, who, who stole or who did whatever my sin is. You confess it all. And by putting your hands on the head of that lamb, it's transferred to the lamb. That's what the picture is. And then the priest pulls out a knife, a really sharp knife, and gives it to you. And you're called to slit the, the animal's neck. Okay, so what's it being pictured? You're saying my sin deserves death, right? And, and because my sin now is on this spotless lamb, it died in my place. 
So it's this beautiful picture of substitution. I can take a sinless lamb and have it die in my place, but not before my sins are placed on that sinless lamb. Brothers and sisters, that is a picture with Jesus Christ. That's what that was picturing. John, John 1, when John the Baptist saw Christ in the, uh, for the first time in his public ministry, John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What does he mean by that? He's thinking Old Testament sacrificial system. That's the Lamb of God. That's the spotless Lamb that we place our hands upon, transfer our sin to, and he dies in our place. And we live instead of him. We get his life. He gets our death. And that's exactly what Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 53 when it says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid or, or, or taken all of our iniquities and placed them on him. Do you understand that? Um, the word we use when that takes place is the word trust. So, for example, in Acts 16, when the Philippian jailer heard the gospel from Paul and Silas. And he asked Paul and Silas, well, what must I do to be saved? What did they say? Do you remember? Paul and Silas said, believe, trust. Trust in the Lord Jesus. Place everything about you on Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Okay, so that's the idea behind trust. And that's what this psalm is all about. Those who trust in the Lord. Get this, brothers and sisters. You could speak with the tongues of men and of angels. You can have so much faith that you could say to a mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea. Oh, this is 1 Corinthians uh, 13. You can speak with the tongues of men and of angels. You can prophesy. You can cast out demons in the name of Jesus Christ. You can call Jesus Christ Lord all day long. But if your trust is in your religious activity, if your trust is in you in any shape or form, you are not saved. Saved people are people, according to this psalm, who trust in the Lord. It's those people this psalm is written to. If you're trusting alone in Christ, if he is your Savior alone, that's who this is written to. You see, brothers and sisters, actually, I'm going to give you a quick quote. In your notes, it's the second, forget the first one, the second chapel quote. Notice what he wrote. The question of whether I'm okay with God cannot be answered by an assessment of anything about us. But only by acknowledgement of the sufficiency of Christ's provision, his life for ours. His work alone can make us right with God. And when we believe his work applies to us, that's the good news of God's unlimited grace. See, brothers and sisters, the problem is we have a bad heart and a bad record. What's our, our record? Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have a bad record. We have sin. The wage of sin is death. Our bad record means we must die, Romans 6, uh, 23. But we also have a bad heart. So Romans 3, 10 says these words. I'm going to start in, in 13. Their throat is an open grave. Talk about you and me without Christ. The throat is an open grave. Their tongues keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. So we have a bad record and a bad heart. What did Jesus Christ come to do? First, he came to deal with our record. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Um, he made him, God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ, when he came, died on the cross, he died in place of us, our sin. 
He died for our sin. His death was, was the justice that our sin deserves. All have sinned and fall short of glory. The wage of sin is death. So he, when he died, he received our death. What did we receive? His righteous standing, his right standing, his righteousness. Okay, so Christ came to deal with our bad record. He also came to deal with our bad heart. Isaiah, Ezekiel, excuse me, uh, 36, um, says this. I will give a new heart, give you a new heart, and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my, my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. Ultimately speaking of a new heavens and new earth. So you will be my people and I will be your God. So Jesus Christ came, not only dealt with our bad record, he also dealt, dealt with our bad hearts such that in Jesus Christ, guess what? Our record is now clean and our hearts are now washed such that now we stand before God. Yes, we still sin, but we're not guilty of violating the law of God. Why? Why? And how, does that, how is that received by us? How? Psalm 125, verse 1, those who trust in the Lord. That's what this psalm is all about. All right. If you're trusting in God, what's the result? So this psalm is is to commend and to encourage those who trust in God. What's the result? Notice with me verse 1b. Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. All right, in Palestine, there's the central mountain plateau. On the Mediterranean, it's known as the Shephala. When you walk into the shores, that's the Shephala, that's the farming part of Palestine. Then it goes up to these mountains, the central mountain um, um, uh, plateau, and it's a mountain range. It literally has peaks, multiple peaks, up and down Palestine. Well, one of those mountain peaks is Mount Zion, where Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, was built on. And so he says this, if you're, if you're standing upon Jesus Christ, if your trust is God, do you know what you're going to be like? Living in a land with wicked kings, so keep verse 3 in mind, wicked kings who, who, who serve wicked ends and do horrible things. Do you know what you're going to be like? You're not going to be tossed to and fro by waves. You're going to be as Mount Zion. Okay, well, what, what, what sticks out about Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever? So the emphasis here is its longevity. Think of it. Abraham, when he got to Palestine uh, 4,000 years ago, roughly, 3,800, Abraham stood on Mount Zion. That's where he offered Jacob. I'm sorry, Isaac. That's where he offered Isaac on Mount Moriah, which is Mount Zion. He he, He stood on that mountain. 2,000 years later, Jesus would be crucified on Mount Zion. He would walk with his disciples on Mount Zion. 2,000 years later, it hadn't changed. It's still there. And do you know what, brothers and sisters? 2,000 years later, after wars and kingdoms and, 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 and name all the people who have ever attacked and did, sought to destroy Mount Zion, or at least the people there, it's still there. You, you fly on a plane right now, go stand on Mount Zion. So the picture is this. This is the encouragement. Because you and I are trusting God, we're going to live forever. That's the picture. Kings will come and go. Wicked kings come and go. The dimes a dozen. And in the end, they're going to be judged. But us, we're going to live forever. That's what eternal life is, guys. Life pertaining to the age to come. A life that never ends. 
We're going to live forever in Christ. If you're trusting Christ, you live forever. But if you're trusting in your religious activities and the different things that we think are so important because we're so performance-based, right? We're performance-based as Christians. What we do, we do because that's what's going to make God happy. Absolutely wrong. That's, that is, that's what we want, but that's wrong. What makes God happy is Jesus Christ in us. And if Christ is in you, then guess what? God is happy with you. You are not guilty of any sin, and thus you will live forever with God in paradise. Okay? That's the consequence. And thus you and I can live our lives with boldness. Why? Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, naked, peril, sword? Just as written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We're considered as a sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If Christ is your trust, guess what? You are eternal, invincible immortal so live in a land with wicked kings live in a land where they do these horrible things and don't be burdened because you're going to outlive them i love this quote from c.s lewis look at mount zion it's been there now for four thousand years more than that right since the beginning of the world it's been there guess what brothers and sisters that they are mortal That mountain is mortal. Right now I'm speaking to immortal beings. You're going to last longer than the mountains. Do you understand that? And this is saying you're going to last longer than the mountains with God in glory. Talk about encouragement. If your trust is Christ, the consequence is you will live eternally with the Lord. Incredible. Now, therefore, you can be bold. Why? Because you're bold in spirit? No. Notice with me the second point, verse 2, the confidence. As the mountain surrounds Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. Quickie. So the mountain range I just described, there's Mount Zion. Well, it turns out Mount Zion is not the tallest peak. Mount Zion actually is, is, is much sh- uh, shorter. Is that the right word? Elevation is less than the mountain peak surrounding it. So this is the picture. The, the psalm says, if you're trusting Jesus, you're Mount Zion, surrounded by the mountain peaks of the Lord. Those are God. They represent God. You and I live our lives surrounded by God. He's within us, behind us, goes before us, beside us. We live our lives always coram Deo, right? During the Reformation, we live before the face of God, in the presence of God. And this God cares, obviously cares for us and, and guides us and uh, protects us. That's the God in, whom's, in whose presence we live. But get this, the emphasis of this, let's read again. As the mountain surrounds Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. The emphasis is not just in the fact that God is omnipotent, all-powerful, and eternal. That's not it. It's also that his promises are omnipotent powerful and eternal malachi 3 6 i the lord do not change therefore you O sons of jacob are not consumed is that incredible because god doesn't change which is what this verse is saying we're not consumed what does that mean that means his promises don't change because i don't change 
If I saved you in Christ, you can commit, don't, I'm not saying you should, but we can, we're able to commit all kinds of heinous sins, and that doesn't affect our salvation in the least. Now, if you know you're saved, you won't want to do that. But get this, brothers and sisters, no sin, no height, no depth, no angel, no demon, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because God never changes. We are secure. His promises never change. Therefore, we are secure in him. That's the confidence we have as God's people. When our trust is in Jesus, we've come to a rock that cannot be moved. Psalm 18, David wrote it. God is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God, the God who girds me with strength and makes my way blameless? He makes my feet like hinds feet. Hinds are deer or, or mountain goats. And sets me upon my high places. Brothers and sisters, amazing. All right. That then leads to a qualification or a caution. Notice with me verse 5. So that's the, the psalm, but there's a caution here. The caution is, comes in verse 5. Notice, but as for those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will, will lead them um, with the doers of iniquity. Lead them away. What is a crooked way? How do we define that? Well, Christ defined it for us. I'm not going to spend time spending, uh, giving you the Hebrew in the whole bit because of, of time. But um, Christ gave us the definition of what of, of, of this. He leads them in their crooked ways. What are those crooked ways? Listen to Luke 18. Okay, what makes a way? What makes a man a crooked man? What makes a way a crooked way? Luke 18 verse 9. Speaking of Christ, he also told a parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. You mean who prophesied and did miracles and casted out demons and spoke with the tongues of men and of angels and did all these other things? Yes. Those people. He told a parable to people who thought that because of their religious duty, they're amazing before God. He said, two men went into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee who prophesied, cast out demons, and did miracles. Uh, the religious green array in that time. And the other a tax gatherer who was the epitome of wretchedness. A Gentile was a better company than a tax collector, if, a Jewish tax collector if you were a Jew. Because Jewish tax collectors raised money for Rome, which means they were, they were betrayers. They were most hated. Okay, so Pharisee tax collector in the temple. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes that I get. I prophesy. I cast out demons. I do all these religious things, right? But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, even was unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, angry at his wretchedness, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He has nothing to offer God, nothing. All he can do is sit there and say, God, I plead for mercy, because I can do nothing. There's nothing I've done to merit you to love me or to forgive me. So all I can say is, God, be merciful. What did Jesus say? He said, the, the tax uh, collector went down to his house justified, not guilty, rather than the Pharisee. Why? Why? Because, brothers and sisters, as righteous and as glorious as you might uh, be in terms of doing things, casting out demons, preaching, missions, all of that stuff that we started with, if you have one sin in your life, you go to hell. And... Because of that one sin, 
our disposition is to look upon those things thinking that will placate God. I do all these things. God must love me. You know what that's called? That's called pride. I think I've merited enough. I'm a good enough person that God could love me. You know the greatest sin you could ever commit before God? Do you know what it is? It's pride. Proverbs 6 gives a list of seven wretched sins before God, the top seven. And the first one on that list is pride. There are six things that the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, pride. James says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He hates the proud. He damns the proud. He's opposed to the proud. So this, this, this comes and says, brothers and sisters, you trusting in Christ alone, you're as Mount Zion, surrounded by those mountains. You cannot be moved. You are God's people. You are the beloved of, of God. So stop allowing the world in which you live to dictate your agenda, to drive you and move you, to make you worried and bother about all kinds of things. Stop living like that. Trust your God. And you go, great, that's the whole body. Yeah, but guys, there's, a, there's some amongst you who aren't trusting God. They look just like you. In fact, they look even better than most of you. They're the ones prophesying. They're the church leaders. But their trust is themselves, not the Lord. And because of that, what's going to happen to them? They're going to be led away with the wicked kings as well into hell. So it's a very sober psalm as we sing it. Basically say, hey, Christian, where's your hope? Where's your confidence? Where's your joy? That's what this psalm's asking. What is it? It's Christ. If that's the case, then you can live with confidence in a world that's filled with gloom and doom. Why? Because you're living in light of tomorrow. Right? So notice how this ends. The cry, I would have said the prayer, how we should pray. So this is a psalm we're to sing, and we end by praying. And this is the prayer he wants us as people trusting in Christ to pray. One, do good, O Lord, to those who do good and to those who are upright in their hearts. We're almost out of time, so therefore I'm not going to... I have a lot I want to talk about about prayer here, right? Prayer is not the means by which God changes things in this world. Prayer is the means by which we are realigned with God's priorities, principles, and purposes. That's what prayer is. So why would we pray for God to do good when we know, Scripture says, we know God causes all things to work together for good to those who, who love God. Why would we pray God for God uh, to do that? Because, brothers and sisters, that's a prayer God will always answer yes. In other words, pray the promises of God. Why would you praise them? They're promises. Because it realigns your thinking, your priorities, your standards. Your prayer is not, God damn the king. That's what we want to pray when the king does bad things to us and kills Christians. God, um, vindicate my name. I got fired because of something. Vindicate me. God, give me money. God, give me power. Give me success. God, give me all these things that I want. The psalmist says, no, he doesn't want you praying those things. He wants you praying that God would do good to his, for his people, and he's going to. And then notice how it ends. It ends with another prayer. Verse 5b, peace, shalom be upon Israel. This is incredible. He doesn't pray that his world change. What's the, how does the psalm end? He prays that God would enable the Christian to have peace in a, tur- in a turbulent world. You, you, you get that, guys? I've shared this 
C.S. Lewis's great treatment on magic and science. They came up at the same time after the, after the Renaissance. We think magic would have been characteristic of the Middle Ages when people were, you know, uneducated. He says, no, you rarely read about magic in the Middle Ages. It all comes after the Renaissance. And magic and science have one thing in common. Both are seeking to manipulate the world in which it lives. Now, magic fell away. None of us really believe in magic anymore. No one does in our, our culture, maybe. Science won out, says Lewis. But notice what won out. One means by which you and I endeavor to manipulate our world. And then his comments this, such a far cry from how God's people lived in Scripture and throughout all of the ages. God's people did not live seeking to try to manipulate the world. Now, there's nothing wrong with science. Don't misunderstand that. Lewis is not saying science is bad. But it's the motive. Christians live in this world not seeking to manipulate the world to make it more homey and more easier to live in because, quite frankly, I don't want to die. I want to live forever here. I don't. No, brothers and sisters, our call is not to manipulate the world so that it makes it easier for me our call is God transform me that I might know your peace in the midst of a turbulent world. Isn't that what we're after? Peace like a river, sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say. This is the heart of peace. It is well with my soul. Psalm 125. We're out of uh, time. Um, let's make sure we fellowship around this over our fellowship meals. What a wonderful psalm. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible psalm before us, given to your people to not only be learned, but sung all the time as they travel to the New Jerusalem. God, give us the grace to learn this song. Give us the grace to teach this song to our children. That, Lord, we would raise children who would sit at the feet of Christ and call that glory, rather than Martha's who would long for help and attention and call that glory if she got it. Give us the grace, O Lord, to be a people who are happy to live in, a, in, in the fallen world in which we live so long as we know Jesus Christ is our Savior, and thus it is well with our soul. Lord, the body they may kill, but your truth is forever. We stand upon that truth and upon you this day as we trust in you, our Lord. Give us that, that, that enduring faith, O oh God, that is enduring not because we're so strong, but because the object of our faith is so awesome and glorious. You are God. So God, be our trust, our hope, and our joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.